India. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Hello. Welcome. This is the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. Kevin Barrett here broadcasting out of the old ice cream trailer parked deep in the woods of western Wisconsin in a thoroughly undisclosed location talking about all the cheerful topics to help get your weekend off on the right foot. Today, it's biological warfare, nuclear warfare, and the strange death of John Statmiller. We'll be remembering in the second half hour with Jim Fetzer. The final hour will be devoted to Meryl Nass, who's a biological warfare scholar, talking about her latest COVID-19 research and now, oh, the no. first half hour, bringing back Dave Lindorf of This Can't Be Happening, one of my favorite websites. He has a new article out, The U.S. is Set to Make Nuclear War More Likely. That's great news, isn't it? And even better news is your tax money is at work. $1.7 trillion for a single weapon system, the F-35A Lightning Fighters, which are being upgraded to carry thermonuclear weapons. Don't you feel warm and fuzzy inside? You know that your tax dollars are being spent for such great things. And it gets worse from there, but I'll let Dave talk about that. So, hey, welcome, Dave Lindorf. How are you? Hi. Thanks for Good having me on. Back. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, my whole life sort of has been spent under the gloom of a nuclear mushroom cloud ever since I noticed such things at about age 12 or something like that. And it's kind of a miracle that you and I have uh, have been able to grow old without dying of radioactive fallout. Um, how, how the heck have we survived with these lunatics building these obscene weapon systems and aiming for first strike capability, basically behaving utterly, recklessly like total psychopaths? Uh, and, and why does everybody put up with this, Dave? Yeah, that's a bunch of good questions. I'll answer one of them. Um, I, I, by the way, I uh, remember ducking under desks in fourth grade. Um, so I, I guess I go back a little further than you in my memory. But uh, that when, you know, duck and cover and all of that stuff. Yeah, um, I missed that by a year or two. That was like, I, yeah. I, I got there in time for the hula hoop. That, that was better. Okay. Uh, it was a pretty scary time. And, and uh, you know, we were hearing about the missile gap and the Russians had so many more missiles and bigger missiles than which was all a lie. Uh, during the Kennedy campaign. It makes good Freudian penis envy. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, they were bigger too, right? And, yeah. and uh, so, but uh, I actually am working on a movie right now that's almost done. That's going to be, uh, it's already been submitted to a couple of festivals, uh, including Sundance and the Berlin Festival, but um, it's close to done. And um, it's about Ted Hall, which you, you ask, how did we survive? Well, Ted Hall was the youngest spy in the Manhattan Project. He was hired as a junior at Harvard, a super brilliant physics student who went to Harvard as a sophomore, accepted as a sophomore, I guess a junior at 16 from Manhattan. Uh, and uh, he uh, was then hired 
um, at 18 as uh, in his junior year, at the end of his junior year, to uh, go to work at the Manhattan Project. And he got put on a uh, aspect of the plutonium bomb, which was testing the, and adjusting the, the uh, construction of the implosion device for that bomb. As a very complicated bomb to make, unlike the uranium bomb, and the Russians couldn't get the uranium, so this was the bomb that they actually copied, thanks to Ted and to uh, Klaus Fuchs, and they they were complementary. That's what people don't know. Ted was just a kid, but uh, and didn't know Klaus Fuchs, but what he gave them was uh, exactly what was missing from what. The, the voluminous amount of detail that Fuchs gave them and enabled the Russians to get their bomb about two to five years faster than they would have and probably saved them from being obliterated by 300 to 400 U.S. atomic bombs in like 1950 or 51. They were planning that. Truman was planning that and had been told that's how many bombs it would take by the Pentagon strategists in their wisdom. So the movie is about that and how he saved the world. Um, and and somehow I don't think this is showing up in the high school history textbooks yet. No, no. And <laughs> and he never got caught. That's why. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of an embarrassment to the FBI and CIA and everybody else that he never got caught, even though they he was the first. He also in addition to being the youngest uh, scientist on the project, he was the youngest spy in the Soviet network, and he was the first one identified in the Venona transcripts of the, uh, um, you know, the cables, uh, spy cables that were decoded um, by the precursor to the NSA. But the the, the main point is, Ted uh, was not a, car, a communist until after the war, when they brief he and his wife briefly joined the party. Um, because it was the only one that was opposing, uh, you know, basically U.S. apartheid. Uh, but they didn't last long because they thought it was, uh, you know, a pretty crazy outfit with, with just, you know, follow the leader kind of thing. But in, in any case, he wasn't a communist, and he uh, volunteered to do this because he concluded in discussions with his roommate at Harvard after he got the job that, um, and, and knew he was going to work on some kind of weapon that he'd have to tell the Soviets about it because it was becoming clear that the Germans were losing the war and that this bomb was not going to be used on the Germans but on the Russians. And he was right. And he and he believed that if there was a U.S. monopoly after the war, quite correctly, I think, that the U.S. would have used that monopoly to uh, maintain dominance of the whole globe and to prevent any other comp- country from getting the bomb. So so he I, he uh, really should get a posthumous uh, Nobel Peace Prize. So what's the best source things. on this? What, what, what's your source for this? Because his, I don't think his story is very well known, even among, at least I, I hadn't really run into it, and I've read a fair bit on these nuclear issues over the years. Well, there is one book, excellent book on him that was done in 97 by two Cox uh, News Moscow correspondents, a husband-wife team, who uh, raced over uh, to talk to him after he was exposed um, by the declassification of the Venona transcripts in 1995. He was working in Cambridge, 
as a biophysicist and um you know the news came out and there was like a you know a um a scrum of reporters outside their house in Cambridge in Newnham the suburb of uh, outside of Cambridge and uh they went there and the the, the the halls had been rejecting everything uh talking to anybody but the um you know Joe and uh and um Marsha were very persistent and uh finally left a note saying where they were going to be staying in London and if he changed his mind um cuz he he brushed them off at the door um that they would come back and talk to him and give him you know uh, full control over what they wound up writing in terms of you know having a chance to see it and comment on it and critique it and uh the book is great uh, and um so i read that i i i found out about this actually by writing the, uh, a in 2017 a uh, memorial on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh week and i i wrote about them uh, about Klaus Fuchs and i had run across Ted Hall cuz there is some mention of him if you look up um Los Alamos atomic spies but it's very brief about him yeah, i i was just struck by his age and i read enough to know that he gave some interesting details to the russians that were important um so i wrote that the two of them should get uh posthumous nobel peace prizes and about two weeks later i got this email that said dear dave i'm reading your uh article in counterpunch uh, with tears in my eyes i'm ted's widow and uh we need to talk so <laughs> that's how i got onto the story and then I interested a uh, really important director, Steve James, um, uh, who I had some uh, doings with as a on-camera reporter in a film he did about uh, the Abacus Bank indictment, uh, the only bank indicted in the whole, uh, um, you know, financial crisis, and it was like this little uh, smallest bank in New York owned by a Chinese family and you know, it was a total fiasco. They they didn't deserve to be indicted and they won uh all fifty counts uh, all hundred and fifty counts against Vance's indictments. It's a great story. But I got to know Steve James and his producer Mark Minton and I asked them if they'd want to do this story and they jumped on it. So I'm a co producer with Mark and Steve's the director. And so what's the title, and when does it come out? It, it's tentatively Joan and Ted is the title. Okay. <clears throat> there may be a subhead, the teenage spy who saved the world, but I'm not sure we're going to use that or not. But it's it's uh, not it, it's owned it, it's been bought by participant films. Uh, they haven't figured out yet the marketing as to whether they're going to do a uh, theater release or p- more probably uh, get a streaming deal. Because who knows what theaters are going to be like <laughs> right. in the spring. Well, so, I, I can see we'll that see. Your, your your spin on this probably runs counter to the mainstream mighty Wurlitzer propaganda machinery. Oh which, my God, course, we're we're saying yeah, but, that we're saying yeah. that Ted was right. You know that. Clearly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, to, you know, today, he, pre- he prevented a, a U.S. monopoly after the war. Right, and of course that that's a very strong argument 
but today the conventional wisdom, for example, in the case of the Middle East, is that Israel having a nuclear monopoly, even though Israel is by far the most reckless nation that's ever existed on the face of the earth, is a good thing. And that if you know Iran were even to have a civilian nuclear power program, that would be too close to developing nuclear weapons. So we have to do everything possible, including massive terrorism, assassinations, and God knows what else, maybe allowing Israel to nuke Iran in order to make sure Israel keeps its nuclear monopoly. So apparently the official wisdom is nuclear monopolies are great as long as oh, yeah. it's us that has. Yeah. Look, look, the U.S., is still trying to achieve a nuclear monopoly. The whole the whole dream of Star Wars was to create a nuclear monopoly by by preventing the Russians from being able to retaliate from a first strike. The U.S. has first strike policy. Uh, we're always working towards have uh, finding that weapon or weapon system that'll allow us to obliterate Russia's. Uh, nuclear forces and prevent them from launching. And that was what my uh, article about the F-35 was about. It was, this is another try at achieving a successful first strike that that eliminates the chance of a retaliation. Yeah, that's what I was talking about with Richard Cook last week at this time on the same show. Uh, Richard was the whistleblower who exposed the Challenger disaster and he recognized that not only was that caused by Reagan pushing or Reagan's White House pushing for an unsafe launch because they wanted to have Reagan talk to the, yeah, right. or the teacher in space uh, during his State of the Union address. But then also the military was pushing for a ridiculously accelerated, massively unsafe uh, launch schedule because they were using the space shuttle to take military hardware into orbit. And of course, Richard like you uh, and a few others, uh, Dr. Bob Bowman, who actually headed the Star Wars program under Ford and Carter and then resigned as a whistleblower. Uh, they they, and everybody else who knows what's going on knows that Star Wars is really about a U.S. first strike capability. So how, how can our leaders be pursuing this ridiculously destabilizing and you know pro-nuclear war uh, course of action and still peddling to the people the idea that it's all defensive and no we would never strike first we're the good guys yada 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 the average american believes that uh, the us doesn't have a first strike policy that's been it it's not really mentioned in the mainstream media that, that that is our policy, and it, it's been our policy since day one uh, when you know the Trinity bomb uh, test went off successfully, and it and it's been the policy ever since. So um, you know the the Chinese have a no first use policy. Uh, Russia does not have a stated one, but they keep saying they wouldn't launch first. Um, but the U.S. has an overt first use policy it's built into the all the plans that we wouldn't wait until uh the somebody else attacked us and the missiles were on the way we would in a crisis strike first that's the uh, pentagon strategy dan ellsberg has written about this really fantastically in uh the doomsday machine i don't know if yes. you've read that that's one of the yes, scariest books that's, that's i've ever read book. i'm trying to get I, so he's been on the show, but I haven't gotten him back to talk about that book yet. I read that book um, in over the course of 
about six nights going to bed, which was a really bad idea because I had six nights, six sleepless nights, and some after that. It was the scariest book I ever read. How, now, how now, these guys are and, thinking? And, yeah, let, let's just spell out to the listeners that not only you know has the U.S. had this <laughs> first strike policy uh, going throughout the existence of nuclear weapons. But in the 50s, the details of this were that as soon as there's a shooting war with Russia or China, for that matter, but they expected Russia, we're going to launch everything we have and murder hundreds of millions of people. And if we go to war with Russia, we're not only going to obliterate Russia and kill everybody in Russia, we're going to kill everybody in China, too. Yeah, that was one of the things I didn't realize. I'd never known this, that the plans uh, immediately assume that if we go, if we attack Russia or if we attack China, that we will immediately include uh, the other country in the attack. Uh, even though, <laughs> uh, you know, now we've driven uh, China and Russia into each other's arms uh, through all of our hostility to each one. But, uh, you know, one of the things Kissinger did very successfully was to realize that there were a lot of uh, of uh, there was a lot of distrust between Russia and or Soviet Union at that time and Mao's China, and uh, he he played that beautifully and and really helped divide them uh, and to have the U.S. be uh, be more friendly with China than with the Soviet Union. And that's all been undone. I mean, they're like, uh, they're like best buddies at this point. So yeah. we probably are targeting both of them again. So, so the people in charge of this are, are not like complete, you know, idiots in terms of having say low IQs or anything like that, not quite the opposite, but their policies seem just utterly insane and completely unhinged utterly lacking in common sense uh you know and, at, at and every any level. any shred of morality and and any shred of morality but i mean morality is built into common sense in a certain way that uh, a sane person who was believing they were defending their country would not pursue these policies uh including you know the strategic blunders like as you said driving driving russia and china into each other's arms uh, blowing you know six eight maybe ten trillion dollars post 9 11 on middle eastern wars that are not even in our interest uh these kind and you know these what does the middle east have to do with anything at this point obviously china is the new rising power it just seems like these, you know, these geniuses that they hire at Rand Corporation uh, are, are the dumbest people on earth. Yeah, what, well, the, if, when you read uh, the Doomsday Machine, uh, Dan explains that he was hired by the Defense Department with a with given an, the, the highest security clearance, uh, the ability to ask anybody at any rank any question he wanted and get an answer, demand an answer. And the few times he was turned down, he, he went back to the Defense Department, to the secretary's office and said, I need you to tell this guy that, to answer my questions. And they always would. Uh, and and what he was tasked with doing was looking at the command and control structure of the U.S. Um, uh, nuclear force because they were concerned not that it, somebody would fire off uh, a, uh, a weapon without authority, but that you know, when the order was given, it might not make it through the chain of command and and actually happen. So, but when he got into it, he started finding that both things were a problem. You know, one was would the would the commands 
be followed, and and would the would they be uh, would they reach all the far flung bases that would be uh, essential to a full full scale attack? And because a lot of them, you know, in the fifties and sixties, were um, bombers, and you know, they flew from the Philippines, from Japan, from aircraft carriers off of the coast of China, from European bases, and you know, all those things had to get the message, and. Um, so that you know there was that and then there was the second question which he realized was that basically every day some base goes offline because of something screwy you know either a cable uh has a short or uh there's a solar uh flare or you know uh somebody pushes the wrong button on a computer there's there's so many ways that communications go down and then he and then he pointed out that you know, once you once you have launched the, the planes with pilots, that uh, they don't always get the messages as they're flying to their target, like they're supposed to be call call backable. And in fact, a lot of times they're out of uh, out of contact radio contact with uh, either satellites or uh, or any kind of ground system. So um, th- then they have to decide. You're on just their like own. in Doctor Strangelove. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he says in the book that Dr. Strangelove, uh, the producers and writers of that uh, of that incredible movie, uh, actually communicated with people in the Pentagon about uh, the command and control system, and they were writing a true story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ellsberg said he left the theater with his grand, grand friend saying, uh, wow, that was a great documentary. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And, and that which should also, you know, put the fear of God in you. But um but at any rate, you know, so so to do the F35 thing, uh, what I was writing about is that, you know, the the F35 uh and I mentioned Bernie Sanders in this because he's been lying about it. The F35A is the Air Force version of that plane and every single one of the F35s, it's about 1300 of them that the Air Force has ordered. Um, they're the main, that's the main plane. Uh, every one of those planes is going to be, um, upgraded to what they call a block four upgrade, which includes changing the siding on it called fairings, uh, to open up the body more so that it can carry two thermonuclear weapons, which are dialable, uh, from between, get this, 0.3 0.3 kilotons, that's 300 tons of, of TNT, to 50 kilotons, which is double or more than double the size of the bomb on, Fukush- on uh, Nagasaki. So, I mean, that's not a small bomb. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's small by comparison to megatons, but it destroys uh, an entire city. And um, so these planes are equipped with two of these, so that would be 100 kilotons of bomb in one plane and we're forward basing hundreds of these in europe in countries like uh um i think they have them in uh one of the uh baltic countries maybe estonia or lithuania i can't remember which and in um in uh some of the old east bloc countries poland has a base um trump wanted to have it named after himself um and um, some other countries, Romania, I think, has one, and, and maybe Czechoslovakia. Uh, so these are really close to Russia. And so um, 
the, so this is a plane which is supersonic, although when it flies at a supersonic speed for too long, the radi, radi, radar uh, invisibility coating um, gets blown off it. Uh, or if it's raining, it gets blown off it. But at any rate, let's put aside the... They, they forgot the, to waterproof the radar invisibility coating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's just a cheap failure, you know, uh, expensive failure. But but at any rate, let's let's just put aside the fact of the of the plane's um, many many uh, failings as a product. Um, a, what it's supposed to do is fly at supersonic speeds uh, at close to the ground uh, and have the ability to evade um, uh, advanced radars, which means. Chinese and Russian radars because nobody else has advanced radars, and um, and to you know streak to uh, make pinpoint drops of these small usable nukes um, on on uh, you know command and control centers, government uh, quarters, individual missile silos, and um, concentrations of troops like uh, bases and stuff like that. So the idea would be that these things would come into Russia or China at high speed and take out everything uh, that they can reach with their you know, limited um, uh, uh, travel distance with carrying a load of nuclear weapons. And that would be, you know, maybe 500 miles. So if you look at where those bases are, 500 miles takes out uh, most of the population center of Russia in, you know, east of the Urals, or west of the Urals. And um, so if they could actually do that, um, they would surprise the the Russians they would take out their government. They would take out their main air bases. They'd take out their missile silos. And, you know, in doing it, they probably would launch uh, Minuteman missiles, which are pinpoint accurate, the Minuteman 3, and hit uh, the missile silos in, you know, other places and the sub bases uh, with their, you know, their counterattack ability. And, and of course, you'd you'd have the usual uh, U.S. hunter killer subs that follow Soviet missile subs would take out those subs as best they could, and that would give the U.S. a, a credible, you know, th- it would, it, a credible first strike that the Russians would not be able to respond to. Um, the point I make is that the F-35 is in no way um, a defensive weapon because. Um, the only thing it's good for is a short range attack like that, you know, under 500 miles. And because after that, you know, they're going to be noticed if they, if they come from any further, they have to have aerial refueling, which means tankers and stuff, which all get spotted by radar. And, you know, very quickly, uh, you know, there's an attack coming. So that's not a surprise attack. And if they were to retaliate, um, if the purpose of the F-35 was to retaliate, you wouldn't need the um, the uh, um, ability to be invisible because by then you would have had missile strikes on uh, Soviet radars, and you'd just want the fastest planes you had you could have, not things slowed down by um, you know 
invisibility coatings and things like that. So um, they and 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 also you wouldn't need a plane with uh, with pinpoint targeting ability because all the missile silos would be empty at that point. All the if it was a first strike by Russia or China, all the government officials would have long ago gone under some mountain knowing they were making a first strike, all their troop concentrations would have spread out and knowing that they were going to have their bases hit by, you know, either missiles or, or plane bombs. And so that there'd be nothing to hit with a, uh, with a small bomb. You'd want to hit them with a large bomb and, you know, uh, cover a lot of area like hit with a megaton bomb, not a 50 kiloton bomb. So this is not in any conceivable way a, a retaliatory weapon, the F-35. It's a first strike weapon. That's the point I want to make. Yeah, and that, that's the point we need to keep making and Bernie, over and over and, and over. And, and, and let's hit Bernie Sanders here, because Bernie Sanders has been uh, aggressively demanding all through these years of development of the F-35 that the uh, Air National Guard of Vermont would get uh, 18 replacement planes for the F, uh, I think it's F- 18s that they have or F-16s, um, and um, and he got it, and he lied, and even doctored a letter he got from the Pentagon to make it say that make it imply that those planes in in Vermont would not be getting uh, an upgrade to uh, to be able to carry nuclear weapons when in fact every single plane will get it, and. Um, so the the that was you know he he knows that that's true uh they will be uh they may not be the same planes because i i found out the way they do it i think this is one of his fudges the planes that are there now would be flown to you know some uh uh lockheed martin site for getting fixed to, to be nuclear carrying uh, they involve soft, software changes and adding the larger fairings, and uh, that probably wouldn't be the same planes coming back because it's a lot of work, and they just would fly over once they were already done, and they'd get, they'd get different 18 planes. But the pilots are going to be training to to make bomb runs. Not, uh, I mean, what else would they do? They'd, it's not a good plane. It's not a good fighter plane. It wouldn't be protecting... Uh, inland vermont you know from anything uh, no, it's, it's, it's bernie, bernie sanders is getting us a first strike weapon once again yeah, bernie yeah. sanders foreign policy uh is is garbage i mean he's I, I, some of his domestic policies were obviously refreshing but in terms of uh of the world stage and the commander-in-chief i don't know if he's the guy no <laughs> and he uh you know also the other thing is that uh, he used the argument that you know that he would say truthfully that these planes are not going to be carrying around flying training missions carrying nuclear bombs of course they're not going to be carrying nuclear bombs they're, they're going to be making runs uh and i don't even think they'll be dropping dummy bombs they're just going to be making runs to test the software and learn how to make you know their attack runs um, and then the, the the strategy would be the the way it was explained to me by someone who w- worked in nuclear strategy planning in the in the Air Force uh, in the Pentagon before quitting and 
uh, you know, becoming an anti-war person. And she said that um, the, the strategy is to um, have a lot of these planes based in forward airfields near the Soviet Union or near Russia, rather, and near China, and then uh, to stockpile these uh, B-61-12 uh, thermonuclear weapons, the dialable weapons that would go in the plane uh, at those sites, and uh, to fly it, more planes during a crisis period from the U.S. to those places, um, and then have them added to the armada that would be built up. Um, you know, first, first of all, that would be a threat just the fact that you're doing that and might lead to a premature attack by Russia if they saw that happening, or it would cause them to back down. Uh, that's what the Pentagon would hope, that it would cause them to back down uh, in some crisis because it's pretty, pretty reckless all these planes coming. Yeah, this, this is all a, a bunch of endlessly it's reckless. totally damage. reckless, totally you know, reckless. Basically, Davis, it, the fact that we're here talking about this and we didn't die in radioactive rubble a long time ago is proof of one of two things. It's either the proof of the existence of God or uh, proof that these stories of UFOs running around dislabeling nukes and telling us don't play with those toys uh, must be true because. It, <laughs> no, there actually there actually is, are accounts that show that a lot of these things have stopped because of the acts of uh, certain courageous individuals. Um, the, the U.S. came within a hair of a attacking North Korea and China with nukes when the. Uh, you know when when China came into the Korean War yeah, to, yeah, to support the North Koreans, they were driving the U.S. down to you know the end of the peninsula, and it was going very badly for the U.S. And um, so you know it it looked like we were going to lose, and um, so they actually started sending the bombs over uh, to within range to bomb China and North Korea. And um, one admiral, uh, ultimately supported by a few more, and I can't remember which admiral it was, uh, one admiral said um, to Eisenhower, who was supporting the idea, um, said, uh, you know, there's only one deep water port in South Korea, and all of our ships are there. And all Russia has to do is get one bomb through, <clears throat> you know, obviously they'll, they, they would lose bombers in trying to attack that port. But if they send enough bombers as decoys, if they get one through that has a bomb and they hit that port, it's going to make Pearl Harbor look like a picnic. And yeah, yeah, I, and that's just one example, of course. And, and there are others. There's the Russian subcommander who saved the world, and so yep. on. But we, you know, unfortunately, Dave, I, I should have maybe booked you for an hour because you could. There's so much to talk about here, but we do have the the second half of our guest on already waiting. So um, okay, well, we, look, we could do more. Again. We could do more uh, at another time. That's fine. Yeah. I just can't put an hour into it right now. I'm yeah. under under the gun. Okay. Well, hey, keep up the great work and your your film, which uh, it's it should be coming out uh, about when? Probably late spring. Okay. But work, but, if, but it may be Jones in some festivals near you. You know, maybe it'll. We're going to put it in a lot of festivals. Great. Okay. Uh, so Joan and Ted, the teenager who saved the world, or something along those lines. It sounds great. Okay, thank okay. you, Dave Lindorf. It was good touching bases, and, and this is a really crucially important issue. Uh, God bless, and, and keep at it. Okay, so long, and thanks for doing okay. what you do. Bye-bye. Thank you. Yeah, bye.
It's Dave Lindorf of Can't Be Happening. And now let's move on. I think we have Jim Fetzer on the line. Jim, is that you? Uh, you got me here, Kevin. Indeed, you have. And I thought what he had to say was simply excellent, especially about the F-35 being not a defensive weapon, but an attack fighter jet. Yeah, like so many things, like like the Star Wars program that was sold to us as defense when it was really totally useless for defense because the minute the shooting starts, the satellite platforms are vulnerable. It was really about offensive weapons. They had artificial meteorites to drop on the enemy missile silos. They had uh, some kind of a space beam weapon out of Judy Wood's imagination, only this was real, that could set whole cities on fire. And it was operational back in the 70s, as Bob Bowman, who headed the program, told me. Uh, So the the whole thing is a big lie. These lunatics are planning for first strike. No wonder these crimes that we talk about in the conspiracy world are so over the top. Nobody can believe them. But these people are so evil. They're capable of anything. (laughs) And you understand why uh, Vladimir Putin has every reason to be suspicious of the United States, given our history of lying to other nations, uh, executing coups, assassinating their leaders, misleading them funding Israel when it's not even legal under the Symington Amendment, encouraging Israel, vetoing resolutions against Israel passed by the United Nations when Israel is out to do in the United States and only wants us for what we can do to benefit Israel. It's all catastrophic history, Kevin, sad to say. It sure is. Now, people have been telling the truth about some of these issues, including the issue of Israel and its domination of the United States, uh, include the folks of the Patriot Movement. They were onto this even before I was. I remember running into some of these Patriot Movement people in the 90s, and I wasn't really fully awake at that point. And I thought some of the stuff they were saying sounded a little bit strange. But gradually, I realized that in some ways they were actually ahead of the game. And, And one of those guys uh, just passed away on November 5th. That's John Statmiller, who founded both the Genesis Communications Network, which became the uh, Alex Jones Network later on after he left it, and then Republic Broadcasting, which he kept running right up until shortly before his death. And I know that you and I both, I think, got our radio starts, at least the, in, the, in the 9-11 era, thanks to John Statmiller. You know, my first ever radio show, was when you called me up not long before you were supposed to go on. You said something else was you had some other uh, double booking to attend to. So you asked if I could substitute for you. I'd never even thought about doing radio at that point. But I said, sure. And I ended up interviewing John Kaminsky, who started ranting about Jews. And after a while, uh, Stat Miller uh, suggested that maybe we should toss him off the air before the uh, ADL nuked us. <laughs> <laughs> that was my introduction to radio. Um, and that was well, back in 2006. Well, when it comes to tossing people off the air, I mean, my very first gig on radio was through Danny Romano, who was the program director for RBN at the time. Yeah, as Danny recall, Romero. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As I recall, I called the show Non-Random Thoughts. And because I knew it was a conservative-oriented, I opened up with the first five minutes explaining that I regarded myself as a a liberal in the tradition of JFK and FDR, that I believed in the social safety network, including Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment insurance, workman's compensation, that I believed everyone deserved representation, not just the rich. So I thought I'd, you know, establish my bona fides 
And yet it would be, I don't know how many months later, when I was talking about attacks on Hillary for being a lesbian, and I was actually coming to her qualified defense because... You were defending Hillary Clinton, Jim? I'm sure. Yeah, I was... I was explaining that whether she were or were not a less, I mean, what I know about Hillary today, my God, I condemn her in the strongest possible terms. But at that point, I was explaining her sexual predilections really were independent of her qualifications for office and so forth. And in the middle of the rant, I got a phone call on the air from John Stettmiller. And he says, Fetzer, he says, I'm going to ask you a question. He says, I want to know the truth right here. I said, okay. And he says, are you a liberal? And I said, well, yes, of course. I believe everyone deserves representation, not just the rich. He fired me on the air, Kevin, right there. Then and Fired the you on the spot for being a liberal. He's fired me on the spot for being a liberal. And I, you know, I thought I'd established who I was way back in the beginning with my very first show, but apparently must have missed it anyway. I think he was a pretty good guy, and you know, notwithstanding that he 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 gave me the boot, he thought it was for a good reason. Of course, I don't believe that was the case, but he certainly was entitled to do it. Yeah, well, he fired me summarily too, but he didn't give me a reason. Yeah, I expected him. You know, Kevin, are you a Muslim? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, no, I, I don't know why. I think I think at that time he actually fired a bunch. He did a big turnover sort of thing where he brought in new hosts, and I was one of the people that got booted out. I had too many other networks already at that point anyway, so I didn't really mind. But he, he seemed like a decent guy. I, uh, I got to Look meet him in Austin, and you know, he, I didn't know him well. And I know he was controversial, but, you know, various people sometimes said he could be hard to get along with. Yeah, uh, I was thinking about disco today, too. You know, I was listening to some cool songs and uh, not that I planned it, but I just started. Uh, Kevin, yeah, go ahead. I, 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 by the way, have just refurbished my 9-11 Scholars website and you can find a sensational overview of 9-11 I did there in honor of Robert David Steele, who, as you well know, recently, in my opinion, was taken out. He had a respiratory distress. He was taken to a hospital with his own supply of ivermectin and insisted he not be given the jab. Well, they put him under. They gave him a sedative because he was being obstreperous, outspoken and loud, put him on a ventilator, and it killed him. Oh, man. That's uh, did did they uh, give him ivermectin as he requested? I don't believe they did. I don't believe they did, Kevin. I think this was an opportunity they wanted they wanted to seize and uh, took advantage of it. Wow. So, yeah, the the censorship and the sort of one sided mainstream coverage of these covid issues is really off the charts. It's uh, right up there with the climate after 9-11, where you, you couldn't really get a word of dissent in edgewise. And, and now the Internet has fallen under the power of the censors. So your your website actually went down maybe a week or two ago. I thought it was a while ago that jamesfetzer.org. And, and yeah, uh, that a was... lot of people are worried about you. So what's up with that? Well, it's a bit of a complicated story. Uh, turns out... Uh... Dave Gehari sponsors my website, and he receives uh, formal notifications there, too. But he has been under the weather. He's been hospitalized for over a month now. He's the only person I know who looks as though he's going to survive a ventilator. 
He was in a mental, uh, a military hospital for several weeks. He was in a partial coma with a ventilator. He came out of it and was doing fairly well. They moved him to rehab. Then he had a relapse. They put him on a ventilator again. Well, in the meanwhile, Kevin, there was a notice that was sent by our dear friend Lenny Posner, a copyright claim about which I did not learn because David was under and therefore only discovered when they took down my website. So we're in the process of working to get it back up. Interesting. Well, you know, all of this together, uh, it does sound like COVID-19, you know, really can be pretty nasty, you know, maybe not to everybody that gets it, especially the young, healthy people. But, you know, folks are starting to, you know, I'm, I'm actually starting to know people who have gotten very sick or died from it. You know, you you were hospitalized, uh, and uh, thank God you you recovered well. Um, but with Robert David Steele and my friend and false flag radio comrade these days, John Shuck, he just passed away last month um, of COVID. And uh, so, well, you know, and I I had it too, as you know, in the summer. So I, I think that the, the idea that this is totally, uh, you know, wildly exaggerated. I don't know. I don't. I think pretty much the mainstream discourse on this, you know, one or two percent of people have a real, real bad time with it. And, uh, you know, maybe half a percent plus even in some categories die. Uh, it seems to be quite plausible now to me. Well, I was uh, certainly hit with something and they diagnosed it as COVID. I felt tremendously weak. Uh, I didn't have a high fever, but I it was not good. My wife took me over to a hospital and they did a COVID test, jammed the thing up my nose before I knew it and claimed I had COVID. I was there for seven hours, the first occasion, came home. And then days later, I was so weak I couldn't get out of bed and Jan called an ambulance and they took me over. And I was there for eight hours that time. I was given this... Uh, antibody thing that actually looks like it's pretty good. It's an IV thing. And also a friend had sent me ivermectin, you know, five uh, times two doses a day for five days. And I believe the combination brought me out of it. But Kevin, yeah, whatever I was hit with, it was pretty severe. I don't think I've ever had a, an equivalent before in my life. And John Statmiller described a very strange illness before he died. And uh, we I, I published that in, in the article uh, about about him uh, at Veterans Today. He seemed to describe on the air having some kind of skin issue where he had these boils like bubbling up in front of his eyes in his wow. skin. That doesn't sound like COVID, but I don't know what no, that would be. That sounds pretty damn weird. But I'll just tell you, Kevin, this COVID thing is a wonderful pretext to cover for taking out people you don't like. I mean, it's analogous to... Uh, the Democrats sending all these migrants to all the red states, you know, under cover of night, a change in demographics where DeSantis has stood up and said he's going to start busing them all to Delaware. And, of course, I think that's very appropriate. He's impressing me tremendously, Ron DeSantis. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's also what Jimmy Walters said. Jimmy's in Austria where they're about to force you to get vaccinated to leave your house, basically. So you're you're going to be uh, uh, <laughs> under house arrest if you don't get vaccinated. So I'm telling Jimmy, maybe it's time for him to flee back to Florida. You know, he fled the U.S. after he was threatened for having funded the 9-11 Truth Movement in 2005. So he fled to Vienna, but now he might have to flee back to Florida. Yeah, well, 
Jimmy's a good man, and he's done a lot of good, but Australia looks like it's a beta test, that they're doing everything early in Australia. And uh, from what I understand, Kevin, there are millions of Australians who are protesting in in Melbourne, for example. I'm not quite sure how this is all going to play out, but it's deadly serious. There's no question but what there's an effort to genocide uh, you know, seven and a half billion people leaving only 500 million. And I was speculating. Wait, wait a minute, Jimmy. Up- you, say that, you say there's no question? I would say there is a question about that. Well, well, are, what's the evidence not- that there's no question? Oh, Kevin, God, I've done, you know, I've been reporting on this COVID every single day since like March of 2020. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how many shows I've done about it. Anyone who wants to see some of my latest reports, check out my BitChute channel, Jim Fetzer. There are hundreds of presentations there. Kevin, I just want to add that I think, you know, the damage, the destruction being done by the vaccine as opposed to the pandemic, where I'm, you know, there's so much funny about the pandemic. When it first came out, and I did my earliest report, Oli Damagard suggested I look at the mortality tables for the European nations. And although it was supposed to be raging there, there was no change in mortality. We had a study coming out of Johns Hopkins that slipped between the cracks, showing no change in the mortality in any of the various age groups. The life insurance companies haven't adjusted their premiums, which they'd of necessity have to do if, in fact, there were an increase in mortality because of COVID. I think the fraud is massive. Uh, Edward Hendry and John Rappaport have been particularly good in explaining how they've taken tens of millions of flu cases and simply redesignated them as COVID. Last year, there were 38 million flu cases This year, 1,800, Kevin, do you think that somehow uh, 37,998,000 plus a case of the flu simply disappeared? No, they were simply redescribed as COVID, where Minnesota's state senator, Scott Jensen, who's also an MD, was first put onto this when he was asked to identify a patient of his who had died as having died from COVID when he'd never even been tested. And then Jensen went on to explain how the hospital was again 13 grand for every patient they identified as COVID and 39,000 for every patient they put on a ventilator. This, this whole thing in terms of the numbers is grossly concocted, totally false and fraud. And the Democrats have bought into it because it justified their mail-in ballots, keeping Biden in the basement and discouraging Trump from doing his mass rallies. I hope. There's no doubt in your mind about the extent of the theft of the election in 2020. It was the most. But, but Jim, what, what does any of this have to do with a plan to kill seven billion people? Oh, Scott, I'm just talking about a whole host of issues. Look, David Ike got it right way back when uh, when he talked about the attack on the middle class and wiping out small businesses. The idea is to create a feudal society or the equivalent thereof where you have the rich ensconced in their castles. We call them gated communities today. And the rest who are left are toiling as serfs or slaves in the field. I don't. Yeah, I, I agree that's happening, it. but I just don't see the, the killing of seven billion happening. I don't see evidence that that's actually plan, the plan has been set. Well, they, haven't, they, it's possible. they haven't got that far yet, Kevin, but I'm sure the, the dead, the number of dead is well in excess of 10 million. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And, uh, you know, 
it's just uh, I, uh, 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 I have made so many rather detailed reports uh, day after day after day. I mean, there was a period there I was reporting on the pandemic for every single seven days a week, Kevin. So, you know, I've been I've done hundreds and hundreds on this. I'm giving you my distilled conclusions based upon it rather than having our conversation devolve into debate about the COVID. But, you know, the World Health Organization has a database of adverse reactions to the to the shots, and they have over 2 million adverse reactions to the shots, which is striking for several reasons. Number one, 70% of the adverse are female, indicating this is clearly directed at uh, reproduction and fertility. And number two, the year before, there were only 2,000 adverse reactions, which means there's been a thousand-fold increase in adverse reactions since they introduced a jab. And before that, the year only 87, before that one or two, there's been more adverse reactions and deaths from this COVID vaccine than all previous vaccines in history by many, many orders of magnitude. So you think Aaron Rodgers was right then to insist oh, yeah. on his right to control his own body? Absolutely. Aaron Rodgers, I, I like your piece, by the way. I included it in one of my many reports, Kevin, your piece on uh, VT. I liked it. Aaron did exactly what I've done. I've taken all the measures Aaron Rodgers took, and I've recommended people do the same. Uh, HQ, ivermectin, the antibody uh, treatment. Avoid, you know, romancevir. Avoid uh, the taking the shot. For God's sake, everything you can do. Uh, uh, avoid, you know, hospitalization if you possibly can, because they're being paid to turn you into a COVID patient. So it's all monstrous. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent behind Kev, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Kevin. A hundred percent. Well, uh, good thing we're not on YouTube, or we'd probably be busted for uh, so-called medical yeah. misinformation. But frankly, I'm not sure who's sure, putting sure, out more medical sure. information these days, the mainstream or the alternative. I'm having Meryl Nass on in the next hour, and she's done some great work. She's part of the lawsuits with the uh, RFK Jr.'s Children's Health Defense Organization, yeah. trying to stop the kids from being vaccinated. And to me, that's kind of a no-brainer, that it's obviously more dangerous for these children to get vaccinated than not. And, of course, the public health rationale is that the vaccines are supposed to stop transmission. But most of the evidence seems to show that they're pretty weak yeah. in stopping transmission. Yeah. That's They're not really yeah. effective at that. So why would you you know do this to these kids? Kevin, you're 100 percent correct. And let me add, you know, what I regard as uh, circumstances beyond my control. All the members of my family went ahead and took the jab in spite of my, they didn't even tell me because they knew I would oppose it. And this is a crime against humanity to inject these children. It's completely monstrous. They're even doing it in junior high and high schools. They're bringing the students out and you got National Guard injecting them without their parents' permission. All of this is in gross violation of the Nuremberg Code, the very first principle of which is you cannot perform a medical procedure, an experimental procedure on a party without their informed consent. But of course, in this set of circumstances, it's impossible to give uh, the information that that would require about all the risks as well as the potential benefits. But they never mention the alternatives that are non-invasive, such as ivermectin and HCQ 
from all I understand, Japan and India both virtually wiped out COVID by giving everyone ivermectin, that Biden is giving ivermectin to the Afghan refugees, when they, and that over most of Congress, maybe all have taken ivermectin, even though they're making it unavailable to the American people, Kevin. Well, that's uh, more or less what I last heard from Merrill Nass. She was saying that the if you actually read the studies on ivermectin, they're pretty. It looks pretty promising, uh, and she definitely recommended people using it. And she didn't oh, feel no, that way I about the jab. Yo, show so, with Kevin. I'll be right with you. Okay, oh, wait, hey, Kevin, thanks, Jim. Yeah, it's been a real so, pleasure. Yep, time to head off to your other show. You're a busy man. Uh, keep up the great work. Get your website back. <laughs> Kevin, thanks. Yeah, thanks. We're working hey, on care. it. Thank you so much. Bye. That's Jim Fetzer of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and jamesfetzer.org. We should be back up pretty soon. Coming back on with Meryl Nass after the break. This is Kevin Barrett on Pollution Radio, one of the greatest of all listening sponsored networks.